Good evening, Pastor and uh, Pastor Greg and Pastor Jeremiah are down at uh, the conference at uh, John MacArthur's church, and uh, so I will be your substitute for the evening. Uh, let's have a word of prayer before we get started. Father, once again, we are privileged to gather together in your name, to examine your word, to share with one another. So we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would lead us into the truth and depth of your scripture, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, interesting parts of being a, a pastor, and uh, I would get questions, two in particular, that I want to address a little bit tonight, because as Christians, you're going to run into these questions, and I'm going to suggest how to approach it that might be beneficial without becoming a scholar at some lofty level. Now, the first one, the paper you have in your hand, refers to what is called the heptatic structure of Scripture. It focuses in this particular document on Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And so you might want to have your Bibles. Well, we're going to be looking at several chapters over the course of the evening. And by the time we're through, the, second question, the first question is, how do you know the Bible's true? The second question that we'll be exploring is, how can I lead somebody into understanding how to study the Bible? And uh, already I can make it sound boring, but let's, let's proceed. Okay. When I first did this, I made it as an assignment for purposes of discussion. But, of course, you need to know the Greek language to do the assignment. And uh, I remember when I was over at River Road, we had a Hispanic ministry in the other chapel. And once in a while, they would invite me to come speak. Well, I had to have an interpreter because, as I told them, the sum total of my Spanish is hola. <laughs> and that was it. So when it comes to Greek, it's all Greek to me, but we're going we're gonna to proceed. This whole notion is based on the Greek language of Scripture, the New Testament in particular. Now keep in mind that Matthew was a Jewish man writing to Jews about a Jew named Jesus. And his purpose was to establish that he was the Messiah, that he was going to be king of kings, and he also had legitimate claim to the throne of David. Now, as he goes through, and if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 1, I want to point out a couple of highlights that are unusual in this brief genealogy that he gives us. First of all, you'll notice that there are women listed. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then she who is Uriah's wife, and then you'll notice Mary is at the end of that list. Well, in the Jewish tradition of genealogies, women are not usually married into the picture. They're not talked about. It's always he and his son and his son and so on. And, and uh, you would think the men were begetting everybody, but that's how they looked at the family heritage. And so here he takes us through a rather brief, from Abraham to Joseph, and then he points out that 
Joseph was in that genealogy, but Mary was not listed as an heir in that sense. She was under the David Davidic line, but as a virgin, she was not part of the begetting process with human interjection. And uh, one of the questions that I like to ask a study group is uh, one that uh, you can think about, but I don't have a good answer for you. Did Mary contribute any DNA to the Christ child being born within her? Think about that. Keep in mind, Mary was not immaculately conceived. She had a father who had sin nature like all men do. And so in order for the Christ child to be perfect, then it had to be born of a virgin, which fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy some 800 years earlier. So now let's look at this list here. This is a, about 14 out of 24 uh, pieces of information concerning these 17 verses. And one of the things you'll note is this. In Scripture, what is the perfect number, the number of completion? Seven. You notice, and we're going to be going through several first chapters of books to kind of establish an answer to the second question, but notice in this Scripture, the number of words in that 11 and so many verses is the multiple of seven. The number of letters in those words is the multiple of seven. Number of vowels and consonants, a multiple of seven. Number of words that begin with a consonant, a multiple of seven. Number of words that occur more than once, a multiple of seven. A number of words that occur in more than one form, a multiple of seven. Number of words that occur in only one form, a multiple of seven. Number of nouns, a multiple of seven. Number of words that shall not be nouns, seven. Number of names, a multiple of seven. Number of other kinds of nouns that are permitted, seven. Number of male names, a multiple of seven. Number of generations, a multiple of seven. Now, mathematicians have looked at this over the years that were also Bible scholars, and they pointed out that to do this, even with today's modern supercomputers, the chances of you achieving that goal are something like one with I don't know how many zeros against you actually achieving that. And so, in a sense, you look at it and go, that's not even possible. Not humanly possible. Ta-da! That's the whole point. It's one of those little validations. Now, Scripture all the way through from Genesis to Revelation is full of numerical kinds of things that you can look at. And uh, we're not going to go into those tonight, but I want you to notice these 14 things are found right here in this small genealogy that Matthew provides for us. And uh, notice... When you go down to verse 17, he adds kind of a capstone to the whole thing. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are how many? 14. Divided by 2 equals 7, a multiple of 7. Okay. Then he says, from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. 
and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. You see that this perfection, this complete number, this whole number that speaks of the truity of Scripture and so forth, is one of those little things you can look at and say, wow, this wasn't just some old guy with a beard scribbling down ideas. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and God was the author through all these men over the generations. Now, I put a couple extra little asterisks down below because it adds to this sense of completeness and sense of wonder. Words unique to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, James, Peter, Jude, and Paul are a multiple of seven. The Greek language of the New Testament is much more specific and more precise than English. For example, love, one English word, has seven or eight translations from the Greek, depending on the type and nature of the love. And so, when you look at it, when this portion of Scripture in that short a time contains all of these complete numbers of seven, or multiples of seven, you have to come to one conclusion. It is the inspired word that was given through Matthew. And so you can take somebody through that who is not familiar with Scripture or a brand new Christian or whatever, but the point is the Scripture validates itself. And by the way, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. You can. How many of you have a study Bible that has commentary at the bottom of the page? Yeah, okay. A little premise here that you need to understand is this part inspired, this part opinion. Don't start here and then read. Read first. And so that's why if I'm working with people or teaching a class, I always recommend that you have one copy of the scripture that is just the text. It might have a little uh, inserted reference to cross-reference, but it doesn't have the opinionated commentary. And if you notice, the commentator who is typically listed as the Bible with commentary by so-and-so, and whatever their theological foundation is and how they perceive Scripture, they'll be going along pretty good. You can find things about culture and about words and so forth that are helpful. But ever so often you go, whoop, that's off on a different tangent. And so you got to be careful of those rabbit trails because you end up uh, in the field. Now, one of the things that is important is that we make disciples, that we teach, and parents and grandparents, your first set of disciples are your kids and grandkids, and now, for some of us older guys, great-grandkids. And we're blessed because we get to attend church with them every weekend and get to see them. So that's pretty cool. So the second question that I'm often asked is how do you teach somebody to study the Bible? Well, there's some keys, and you can write them down if you want. The first key is, have you read it? How many, and don't raise your hand, How many of you have read the Bible through from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, word for word, not skipping anything, on a regular basis? It's kind of challenging because a huge percentage of people have not read it through once. They've read pieces, 
Almost anybody can say, I'm saved and I know it because of, and quote five or ten individual scriptures that support that notion. But when you look at the whole of scripture, you come away with this amazing sense of wonder as to how powerful and profound the scripture, even in our modern language, is for the work of the Lord. Now, the first thing I would do with anybody is to try to help them understand who God is, who Jesus is, and who the Holy Spirit is. Those are three aspects of understanding Scripture that we need to start with. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And we're, you'll notice this evening we're going to be going to a lot of chapter 1s. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. And it has some interesting little tidbits in there, I call them. Little special things that you look at and you go, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. So the first thing that we want to see is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, keep that in your memory. God created, the Spirit was hovering over that which was to be created. When you get to uh, the New Testament and you see the angel talking to Mary, he says, that which is going to be placed in you will be of the Holy Spirit, and he will overshadow you. And so that creative act, Genesis 1, repeated again in the New Testament. Now, we can go through and notice the first thing is, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And the light and the darkness were separated from each other. But notice what day that was of the creation. What does it say? And the morning and the evening were the first day. Now keep this in mind. Many, many, many pagan societies over history have worshipped what? The sun. Or the moon. But when God said, let there be light... At that point in time, there was no moon or sun. There was the sun who was at creation, which we'll talk about after a bit. All right. So if we go on through, we'll notice that the sun and the moon and the stars were created on what day? It's open book. You can look. You get down a little ways there, and it'll say the morning and the evening were the fourth day. I often wondered about that over the years, and I thought... You know, God is so wise and understands that people will tend to worship the creation. Paul references it in, in Romans 1. But rather than have them worship the sun, the sun did not pro, uh, proceed or precede the light. The light was Jesus, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, now then we go down and uh, get down to... Uh, Toward the end there, in verse 26, and we notice a special creation. And here's where a lot of people, even church folk, get a little skittish in today's modern society because you're afraid to be called a bigot or whatever. But notice what he said. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, 
over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, this, in today's society, believe it or not, there are a lot of people who don't understand that. And so uh, there's the, these immutable facts that you were born a man, you will die a man. I don't care what you cover yourself up with or what you mutilate yourself, you will still have XY chromosomes. If you were born female, you will always be female. I don't care what you have done to yourself, you will always be female. You will be born female, you will die female. And so society then, because you'll notice if you went further into the third chapter of Genesis, Satan comes in and says he was more crafty than any of the other creatures. As Satan spoke through this serpent, he tested Mary or uh, uh, Eve, and he said, "Has God said? Has He really said?" And then, of course, she added to it and so forth. But she was deceived. She bought the lie, and sadly, the churches in America, many have bought the lie. They have decided that. Two men or two women forms a, a bond that's the same as one man and one woman and so forth. And those are false teachings and should be rejected by any Bible-believing Christian firmly. Now, you don't have to go on a crusade, but you need to be able to stand your ground and say, in the beginning, God created man and he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. Okay? So... That's step one, if you're going to show people how to study Scripture. And even if you don't go any deeper than just Genesis chapter 1, you have established the creation. Now, there's an interesting point in Scripture. If you go to Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was given to the uh, believers, following that time, Peter preached a great sermon. And what did he do? He told them that this Jesus who you rejected and had crucified is the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit, now working through Peter, burned in their hearts the big question, what must we do to be saved? 3,000 came forward on day one. That's an altar call. But let's contrast that with Acts 17. Paul goes into Athens and uh, he looks around and there's a handful of people that come to listen to him. And he said, I see that you are very religious. In fact, I saw a shrine to the unknown God. You were covering your bases. I'm going to tell you who he is. And so he slowly goes through the process of what we just did. God created, man sinned, and so on. And so at the end of that presentation, there were mixed results. Some believed. Some said, what's this babbler saying? And others said, we want to hear more. So the question is, who is the better preacher, Peter or Paul? Don't answer that. But I'll give you a hint. They were both equally effective. Here's why you can say that. The Jews to whom Peter was preaching started with the notion that in the beginning God created. So essentially, they were creationist oriented. They knew that God created the problem was they didn't accept Jesus. And so Peter explained that he is the one who provided 
this messiahship. And so now they were all ready to give up their thing and repent. Now, you know, repent doesn't mean you're going to go through a confession. It means you're going to change your mind, change your direction. And so they repented of that position that they held. They changed their mind about who Jesus was, and the Holy Spirit then impressed them to ask Peter what they must do to be saved. Okay, now, that's Genesis 1. It's a good place to start with anybody. And by leaving some questions that they need to research, you've now whetted their appetite, hopefully, for more study. So now let's turn over to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Now, the New Testament, the Gospels that we look at, the first one, Matthew, was writing as a Jew to the Jews about Jesus, who was also a Jew. And his whole goal was to establish that he was indeed the Messiah and the King of the Jews. Luke was a physician. He was a detailed person. And his Gospel was a little more detailed about certain things, but it's kind of like, here's who Jesus was, here's what he did, here's where he did it, and to whom he did it. And so then, of course, in the book of Acts, he writes it as a travelogue of the first 20 or 30 years of the early church. Mark is a Roman and has a Roman audience, and so he takes the suffering servant aspect of Jesus that he came to seek and save rather than to be a king at that time. Now we come to John. And John has always been very, very special to me because a lot of the people that we have led to Christ and tried to teach them a little bit over the years, even as a youngster, John was the book that we always started with because it parallels Genesis 1 to start. But John takes seven miracles, seven I am statements, and he points out that these are the proofs that Jesus is God. Now notice, let's go to the very first verse of chapter 1 of John. And if you don't have it highlighted in your Bible, um, I do recommend that we have these things called gel highlighters now that don't bleed through. So you can color one side of the page and the other side isn't confused. Now notice what it says. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word, notice it's capitalized, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So, what is it telling us? Jesus is God. God the Father and the Son the Holy Spirit were all present at creation, and through Jesus, creation was given. He was the Word of God. Now, notice here, in verse 4... It says, in him was life, and life was the light of men. Now, when John says that, even the deepest, darkest Pharisee would know that life only comes from God. And he would argue with you and call you a blasphemer if you said that you were part of that picture. But notice what he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then he goes into, from verse 6, he talks about a guy named John the Baptist. And if you go to Isaiah, 
and uh, you'll see him prophesied clear back in Isaiah and uh, in around verse 40 and 41. And in 49, there are continuing references to this relationship. But notice what it says. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light and that all through him might believe. He was not that light. And what he's telling us is that he was not capable of creating life. Okay? But he was, a bear, he was to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, verse 11 becomes, as you're taking somebody into a point of time where they develop an appetite for more, verse 11 is one that is, you can build an understanding of salvation and so forth through it. It says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Who were his own? They were the Jews. Okay, And they did not receive, but, verse 12, and here's the key, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, giving you and me the right to become children of God is a legal picture. Because remember, if you go into Romans, which we'll go in a few minutes, You'll hear about adoption as sons. Here is an interesting one. I remember when I was uh, on the administrative team in Roseburg High School. And we had this young man who was really troubled as a sophomore. And he was, he was having struggles in class and he was acting out and so forth. And so they sent him to me. And uh, so I asked him what was going on. Why are you so upset? What's, what's on your mind that has you so confused? He said, I just discovered I was adopted. That means my parents don't love me as much as they do my brother. And I said, I don't think you understand adoption. So let's talk about that. I said, first of all, adoption in the legal sense makes you an equal to that brother who was biologically conceived in that family. Inheritance-wise and so forth, you can become eligible to be part of that because you have a legal right to be called by their name and your name as one. Second thing, I said, do you realize that the biological birth happens? You, they chose. They picked you out and said, we want him. I said, now, if that doesn't make your heart feel good, then your wood's wet. That should light a fire in you to understand that you were chosen to be part of that family and that they love you enough to take you in and make you a permanent part of that family. And that was kind of interesting because after a couple sessions of that, he was much more lighthearted. And so uh, I explained to his parents, I said, have you spent time reaffirming his place in your family? That he is your son. Regardless of how he came into the relationship of the family, he was your son. And they said, you know, we baby don't do that enough. And I said, I would advise you add it to your agenda so that it's a regular part of telling your kids you love them and especially helping him understand he's one of your kids. 
And that's the same picture that we have here in John 1. To those who believed, he gave them the right to become children of God. Now, the book of John is a magnificent study. If you have five or six months to really dig into it, it'll take you all of that to fully employ all of your brain cells to absorb that through the influence of the Holy Spirit. But going through this, all the way through, you'll see that people are starting to say, what about, they'll have all kinds of questions. That's a starting point for study. Now, the next one, we want to go over to Acts Chapter 1. Now we saw in the beginning God created. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that was made was made through Him. Well, now we come to Acts chapter 1. And it is the preamble, so to speak, of what happens in Acts chapter 2, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit into the body of believers. And so, if we go down to verse 4, after Jesus had presented himself to witnesses and to his disciples, and they were together, and he commanded them in verse 4 of John, or Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then he goes on to verse 7, answering their question about when. And he said, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And here's the promise. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then, of course, we see the ascension. Now, if you are helping a Christian who's not studied well or maybe a new believer and so forth, they need to understand the birth of the church. The church is not just Jewish, it is primarily Gentile, but open to all who receive Christ. Now notice, in Acts chapter 2, we're going to go just a little further there. It says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now, there are two parts of this that I want to focus on just for a few minutes. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 3. It says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, which sat upon each one of them. Now, if you remember, all of you who are seasoned scholars, in Exodus, when the tabernacle was constructed... How did they know whether to stay or go? And what was the sign that was given to them? Over the tabernacle. Remember? By day, a pillar of cloud. By night, a pillar of fire. Where was it located? Well, and they were encamped around it. And actually, it kind of formed the shape of a cross. But as they were camped around it, the fire was not in each individual person. It was in a corporate position. It says, here I am. 
When it moved, they moved. When it stayed put, they stayed put. But then if you go into Kings and Samuel and so forth in the Old Testament, you notice something interesting. There's a guy named Samson. You remember him? And Samson was, he became a hero in a sense, but he was also not a real wise man. But he was going along and a lion approached him. And what happened? It says, and the spirit came upon him mightily. Came upon him. What's different about Acts 2? The Holy Spirit filled individuals. Why did they have an individual fire? That was a change in the economy of how the Holy Spirit would be seen in the context of the people. From corporate to individual. Now, that's just a kind of warm them up a little bit and get them going. Okay, now that means that by the time we get through these other chapters that we're going to look at for a few minutes, you should be ready to take that individual or individuals further into study, even going back to the beginning and starting over with it. But this is to kind of get you going and get them interested in Scripture because you're going to show them all the details that Scripture holds. Okay, now, in... uh, Romans chapter 1, so let's turn there. Romans chapter 1 takes from the historical spiritual context of what's going on to the spiritual context of what it now means. And he's going to introduce what he calls the gospel. And in chapter 1, he introduces himself as a bondservant of Jesus called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets, all in the Holy Scriptures. Now, keep in mind, if you were to read through Isaiah, which is a very profound, uh, we call it one of the major prophets because of how much he wrote, but uh, he prophesied many times over the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. And keep in mind, he was doing that prophecy seven or eight hundred years before Jesus was born as a man. Okay, so here you have scripture, supporting scripture, being interpreted in scripture. Okay, now in verse three, he says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom also you are the called of Jesus Christ. That's his introduction. And notice all of the points of interest that he gives to the budding Bible student. Number one, his son Jesus is heir to the throne of David. You can compare that with what was shown in in Matthew chapter 1. Then he goes on, and he was declared to be the Son of God with power. Now remember, John gave us seven I am statements. Now, if you go back to Exodus, uh, as Moses is out tending sheep after his issues with the Egyptians, and he sees a bush that was on fire but wasn't being consumed. And so he went over, and a voice came to him and called him into leadership. When he asked, who has called me, what was the answer? I am that I am, the self-existing one. I'm almighty God. When Jesus was 
being described in John through the seven I am statements that he makes. He starts off with, I'm the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, and so forth. All I am statements which were declaring his deity through what he spoke. Interestingly enough, when humanism became part of the, I remember in the 70s, Helen Reddy, thing, I am woman, hear me roar, and all that stuff. Feminism became, I am what? I am woman, I am man, I am, and basically it's usurping God's name uh, in essence of, no, you're not him, he is him, and you are but dust. So anyway, here we have a declaration that we have received grace and apostleship from him, and then he goes on and says, first, I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And then he comes down, let's go down to verse 16 and 17, because this is the essence of what we want to point out in this first chapter. Now keep in mind, this is not a deep study. This is just, we're going to be planting some seeds of interest and, and hopefully uh, whet the appetite of a budding student. In verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Okay, what is the gospel? Then he tells us. It is the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that last statement can also be reversed in the original language, by faith the just shall live. And so that also is a similar statement, but it also means by having faith in Jesus, he gives you eternal life. And so what is the gospel? And that's where you begin to reel people into understanding. Let's dig deeper. This is so important for us to understand. Now, we could go on in more depth there, but I want to go over now to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking to a group of believers who are kind of poor-mouthing their condition. But he offers in this first chapter an understanding of what you and I, the believers, have been given in Christ. We've been adopted, accepted, redeemed, given forgiveness, wisdom, inheritance, the seal of the Holy Spirit, life, grace, and citizenship. All those attributes he mentions here in this first chapter. And so the key phrase in this chapter is, in him. These are not just practiced attributes, you only enjoy them in him. And that's the essence of the gospel. It is all about him. Now, if you go to chapter 2 for just another little added incentive to study deeper, we go to the first verse of chapter 2, and he says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Remember, John says, In him was life, and life was the light of men. Okay, he says, in you, he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins. And whence you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This one simply takes us and says, you didn't start out perfect, you were a mess. But, then there's the contrast. But God, who is rich in mercy, verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, did what? Made us alive together in Christ, by grace you're saved. He made us to sit in heavenly places with Christ. Now, one of the ways of looking at that is to kind of have a geographic metaphor. So, if you climb up on a mountain, what's the view from up there? Or if you're in a small airplane where you're only flying four or 5,000 feet above the ground, what is the view from up there? You see cars and people moving, little, look like little ants and so forth, but you have a great expanse of view. You can cover two or three miles wide in your view because of the altitude that you're viewing it from. So, a practical application of this notion we're sitting in heavenly places with Christ, what he's really saying is very simple. You can look at the world from in me. I've conquered the world. I've conquered your sin. I've given you eternal life. And in me, you are complete. And so, you got problems? Yeah, everybody does. But when you look at the problem from Jesus' point of view, you might see something different. Uh, some of you have been athletes back in the old days. Uh, there's an interesting phenomenon. The older you get, the better you used to be, you know, in terms of athletics and so on. But one of the things that I remember from my years of playing football was that practices were very unpleasant. You would run until your tongue was hanging out, and then you'd run some more. And you did all kinds of exercises and and tackling and fundamentals and so forth. Kind of reminds me of the story of Vince Lombardi, who had had a, a real bad defeat at one point. And they were asking him, so what's next for your team? He said, well, we're going to go back to the basics. And so Monday morning, as they all sat there waiting for practice to start, he picks up a football and says, gentlemen, this is a football. That's pretty basic. And so in this case, what you're looking at is a situation where you can view your troubles from the aspect that even if you die because of that trouble, you'll be with him, which is looking at it from his perspective. And it's interesting how, you know, you get sick. When you look at it from the standpoint of sitting in heaven to the places, you're looking forward to doing better. You're looking forward to recovering. And if you're sick unto death, guess what? The greatest healing happens where? On the other side. Okay? So, now notice, he made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, a lot of times, um, have you ever seen a picture of, of an Amish family going along in a cart, pulled by a really wonderful horse? Have you ever seen a horse push the cart? You see, you've got to get it in the right perspective. And so, understanding that 
because we've been given new life in Christ, because we've been saved, we're saved unto good works, that we should abide in them. Do the works provide salvation? No, they're the result of salvation. And so, so far, we can see that we have led them to see creation from the Bible's perspective. We went to Matthew and we saw the in-depth nature of, of the Word of God. And then in John, we see who Jesus is. And now in Acts, the promise of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, all of a sudden the church is empowered because of his indwelling presence. And then Romans tells us about the gospel. And Ephesians takes us to understanding how our life must unfold because of it. Now, there are three words that I want to give you about Ephesians that will be helpful to you. Notice he's made us sit in heavenly places with Christ. So that's the first word. Then in verse or chapter 4, he says, Therefore, walk worthy of the calling. Sit, walk. In the sixth chapter, before the devil, he says, stand. So sit, walk, and stand is a nice little way of organizing your thoughts around the book of Ephesians. Now, you can see that it doesn't take you deeply into any one of these, but it leaves all kinds of questions to be answered. So then the third question now comes to the believer, and it's this. Are you ready to answer those questions? Not from up here, but from the Scripture. And so I want to kind of take us through a couple more little exercises here so that we can feel like we're equipped to introduce new people, new Christians, or Christians who are really not very well skilled with Scripture and how you can entice them into an appetite for study. But again, number one, you have to read it and know it yourself. Now, one of the things you'll understand is that you can't know all of it. Sometimes the best answer I have for somebody is, I don't know. I'll study on it and see if I can come up with something for you, but I don't know. That's sometimes the best answer. On the other hand, when you are walking in the Lord, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's go down to uh, let's go down to verse twenty-three. Well, let's back up. And, let's back up to verse twenty. And that way, it'll give you a little more context. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Okay, now these next two verses are a key picture. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. Okay, so let's put those two in categories. Jews look for a sign, and keep in mind they are a creationist based that God created, and the Greeks look for wisdom. They want to be smart, they want to know all things but they don't come from a biblical creation perspective. And they question everything, but they have no answers, and then they create fictions to answer them. Uh, you've heard of 
Darwinism and some of those things and talk about a, a great fiction that had been perpetrated. But notice this, in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So you can see that Paul says, we're only going to do one thing. We're going to preach Christ and him crucified. Now, let's analyze some things. Let's analyze Sunday school programs for kids. And not talking Twitter, I'm talking about in the evangelical circles, okay? I remember when I was 16 in a little church up in Seaside, the pastor came and said, I want you to teach the, uh, the upper elementary boys. And here's a book. I said, no thanks, I'll use the Bible. The book was basically Bible stories. Now, Bible stories in themselves are not bad, but you know what we tend to do? We tend to sanitize them. We make them little fairy tales and little short vignettes of how wonderful things are. For example, Jonah. Bible story books talk about Jonah and the whale when it was really Jonah and the great fish that God prepared for him. Secondly, it treats Jonah as a hero because it stops as he goes through Nineveh. But keep in mind, can you imagine? His body was in the belly of that fish for three days. Now, if you've ever been bass fishing, bass are notorious predators. And if you decide you're going to eat some of them, you open them up and clean them. And guess what? They have all these partially digested fish and frogs and little birds and stuff in them. Okay. Can you imagine what Jonah looked like after three days in the acids of that fish? Probably looked like a zombie. No wonder the people were terrified when he said to repent or God's going to destroy you. But the point is this. If we have our kids in our Bible school classes and we give them sanitized versions of the scripture and we see them, what, 45 minutes a week, maybe? They go to school and they're in class, especially in the public school setting, uh, which has been the norm for a long time in most places. And what are they taught? They're taught the Bible is nothing but a storybook. And they have them all week long, probably six hours a day, to tell them what they want them to see. Now, in Sunday school then, what do we do? We validate what the teacher said. It's stories sanitized, made simple, and so on. But here is my concern. By doing so, are we teaching our children to be Jews or Greeks? Think about that. It kind of makes you think twice about what we're doing with our kids. Now keep this in mind. You know where the most important Bible class is? for your kids, in your home. These things we've talked about so far tonight are to encourage you, to encourage them to develop an appetite. And I have a suggestion. Um, it's one that we did, and we liked it. When the kids started to be able to read, and of course, you know, both our kids were brilliant, so they read early, uh, that we started out reading the Bible through 
every year until they graduated high school. So they had 12 years of reading the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation. And we started out in a little book called the Good News Bible. Have you ever heard of that one? It's been out of print for a while now. It was very simplified, just straight up English at about a third or fourth grade level. And so we read through that. And then we went to the King James Version and New American Standard and New King James and so on. It's interesting to know, you don't understand how they understand, but as they get a little more cognizant, a little more mature, it's amazing what they retain. I remember uh, we were over helping a different church out for a year with an adult Bible program, and our kids were in the Sunday school program there. And so uh, we always debriefed them Sunday on the way to lunch and then on the way to home. So we said, okay, uh, Javen, uh, tell us about Sunday school. And... Uh, he said, well, Dad, he said, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, she was teaching this and that and the other thing, and he said, you just have to understand, she doesn't know her Bible very well. I mean, the kid's six years old, and he's already got insight into what is and isn't Scripture. And so it's really important that we teach our children Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the Holy Spirit and filling the believer and all of those wonderful things. And don't allow TV and the other influences. And one of the things that uh, don't have this thing active all 24 hours a day at your home. In fact, uh, we always recommend you don't give one to a kid until he's 20 years old. But uh, <laughs> the whole point is this. All these influences can cause doubt and other things unless... You have taken them through the understanding of Scripture, who Jesus is, who God is, who the Holy Spirit is, and how he works in the life of the believers. And so the picture here, I'm going to close this session by going to John again, and we're going to go to the last chapter. Chapter 21. Going down to uh, verse 24, he says this, This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. But why did he write it? That our joy might be made complete. If you want joy in life, I'm not just talking about happy, happy, happy. I'm talking about joy that surpasses anything that comes your way. I didn't used to appreciate that until I found myself in uh, the ICU for a few days after a health issue. And all of a sudden you go, see, you're not so tough after all. And that's when you begin to understand Lord, you kept me through that. You kept me alive through that. You've restored most of what I used to be, but not all. You've left some things to remind me that without you, I'm not whole. And so I encourage you that in your life and in the life of those with whom you have influence, that you whet their appetite for Scripture. 
and make sure that you have a foundation of knowledge to share with them that the Holy Spirit can enhance that message that you give to your children. And so with that, I'm going to stop. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, once again, we are grateful for your word, for the clarity of your word, for the appetite and spiritual development that you provide through it. We ask, Father, that we can take your word, apply it to our lives, teach it to our kids, teach it to those with whom we have to do. And Father, pray for those who are ministering to us, for Pastor Greg and Pastor Jeremiah. We ask your protection upon them as they travel home toward the end of the week. And Father, we just ask that all of those who are ministering in various ways that we don't even know about necessarily, we ask, Father, that you will bless them in that, that they will bear much fruit in your name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.